You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we do thank you for this day that you have given to us, the time that you have allowed us to have, another day that's fallen from your hand, another day to gather as believers, bought with the blood of your Son, Christ, knowing that we have fellowship with you uh, through his person, his work, his merits, none of our own. Father, we pray that you would go with us in this time of worship. We often think of music as being the worship um, part of the service, but truly the, the pinnacle of worship is when, when your word is read and, and preached. And so as we continue in our worship, by worshiping you and uh, preaching, we pray that you would be honored and glorified. We pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, guide us into the truth of your word and that he would illumine the meaning of your word to our minds and would Im- impress that upon us and that we would be obedient to what he teaches us. And these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This is a message I have entitled, Rest for the Weary. Rest for the Weary. The primary text is Matthew, excuse me, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Matthew 11, 25 through 30. Does everybody have a handout? The, the questions, the three or four page uh, stapled handout. I'll be preaching through this and, and as we come to each question there, I'll, I will uh, answer those questions as we progress through the sermon. So that's just something I uh, uh, wrote to kind of help facilitate our, our learning here through the text. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 25, go through verse 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. May God bless the reading of his word. Though grateful for opportunities such as this to come in and and preach a single sermon, it does present a bit of a challenge and a, a bit of a disadvantage in one sense. In that if I were a pastor, and I'm, I'm not, uh, but if I were a pastor, I would be preaching this text, plowing through the text. But uh, the previous week, in all likelihood, I would have preached the verses before it to give a little bit fuller context of what we're looking at here. And that is very important because the context not only gives us the context, but it also sheds a lot more light on the meaning of the primary text. And so if you will... Indulge me just for a second. I want us to look at the verses before this just for a little bit of context. I won't preach these verses fully, but there's a couple of things here that I think uh, are important that I, I want us to see here in the context. So let's look up at verse 20, beginning verse 20 there. It says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. 
The context of this, Jesus is denouncing, he is upbraiding the cities in which he had performed most of his miracles, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, the latter of which, Capernaum, he had chosen as his ministry headquarters. He upbraided them because despite the abundance of signs and wonders, the inhabitants of these three cities had refused to repent. They refused to repent. He had done most of his miracles in these three cities, and yet they refused to repent. So this teaches us, I think, a couple of things. Number one, contrary to what many professing Christians believe, and please do note my use of the term professing Christians, miracles, signs, and wonders are not sufficient in and of themselves to bring the lost to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Christ performed more miracles in Capernaum than any other single city. It was in Capernaum that Jesus healed Jairus' daughter. It was in Capernaum that he healed the woman with the issue of blood. It was in Capernaum that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Pagan religious practices, pagan religions perform miracles, signs and wonders as well. They are, of course, lying signs and wonders, but they have these as well. People in Hindu Kundalini, for example, exhibit many of the exact same kinds of behavior, behaviors and practices that we see today in the modern charismatic movement. People in Hindu Kundalini, they have uncontrollable laughter. They get slain in the spirit. They prophesy. They have uh, miracles. They have physical healings. And they even speak in tongues. And they do these things just as convincingly as any professing charismatic Christian. So what does that tell us? Just because someone is doing these things, uh, displaying some of these behaviors, that is not necessarily an indication that God is the source of that. Pagan religions do the exact same things charismatics do, and they do them just as convincingly. Signs and wonders in and of themselves cannot bring people to repentance. Only when people submit to the convicting power of God's Holy Spirit will they be brought to a place of genuine repentance. Only when they cease to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, as Paul describes in Romans 1.18, will they be converted. So signs and wonders in and of themselves cannot bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ. The second thing that I think this context teaches us, and this is very, this is very interesting and very telling, the sin of indifference is far more serious than the sin of actively opposing the gospel. And how do we get that from this text? Well, unlike other cities, the, the, the residents of these three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, never took any direct action against Christ. They never directly opposed him. They were basically indifferent to him. They ignored him. Now, from our human perspective, it would seem that Jesus would be most indignant, would be most angry at those people who actively opposed him. For example, it was the it was in the town of Nazareth that they tried to throw him off the cliff. Remember that when Jesus went in and uh, to the synagogue and he read from the prophet Isaiah and he sat down and he, he said, well, he said this today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sat down and the people were marveling at the gracious words which fell from his lips. But then he exegeted it just a little bit. He exegeted that passage. Passage is talking about election. It's talking about God's sovereignty. And as soon as he started expounding that passage, the people turned on him instantly. And they tried to throw him off a cliff. They tried to kill him. It was not Nazareth that was the recipient of Jesus' most forceful condemnation. No, it was these, these three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. His harshest pronouncements of judgment he reserved for those people who were not directly opposed to him, who were indifferent to him. King Josiah, as recorded in 2 Kings chapter 2, 22, excuse me, emphatically declared that Israel's great sin, the great sin of Israel was that it had not, quote, not listen to the words of this book to do all that is written concerning us. 
Because Israel disregarded God's word, was indifferent to God's word, King Josiah said, the wrath of the Lord burns against us. This is the tragic and perilous state of most who profess to know Christ. Though we bemoan the moral decline in our nation, we live in a country in which, according to Gallup, 77% of its residents, 77% of the people in the United States of America claim to be Christian. 77%. Dear ones, we do not live in a Christian country. We do not live in a Christian country. This is one of maybe the only statement that I've heard from our president with which I would actually agree, though undoubtedly for very, very different reasons. We murder 3,288 unborn children in this country every single day. We are horrified when we see ISIS beheading people in Iraq and Syria, and rightly so. We should be horrified. But we do not seem to be nearly as horrified, nearly as disturbed by the fact that we do equally heinous things in this country, but we do it on a far greater scale, and yet we do it legally. We do it legally. If we truly lived in a Christian nation, we would be protecting our unborn children, not slaughtering them. We claim to follow Christ, and yet many of us ignore his word. We're simply indifferent. This is true not only of Americans in general, but it is also true of most professing evangelical Christians. As evangelicals, we all profess belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. We all profess fidelity to God's word, and yet most of us are alarmingly ignorant of what is actually in God's word. We as evangelicals are becoming increasingly biblically illiterate. We profess faith in the Bible. We may bring with our Bibles with us to church on Sunday morning, but chances are during the week we'll rarely, if ever, pick it up. We do not study it. We really do not know what is in the Bibles that we carry with us to church on Sunday mornings. If we do not read and study God's Word, then we cannot know God. You cannot know God. You cannot know God if you do not know His Word. For many of us as evangelicals, the Bible is great until it becomes inconvenient. Once it becomes inconvenient, then it's not so great anymore. If it challenges what we have believed to be true, but really is not, then it's not so great. When it challenges our church traditions, not so great. When Christ, in Matthew chapter 18, calls churches to exercise church discipline and even lays out the process step by step, we pretend like that passage is not even there. We ignore it. When Christ, the head of the church, gives instructions to his church about how to bring sinning believers to repentance and how to protect the purity of his church by removing the person who proves himself to be unregenerate by his refusal to repent, we think we know better than he. The vast, vast majority of churches not only do not practice church discipline, they couldn't even tell you what it is. And I'm thankful that this is not one of those churches. And um, if, if the Lord ever takes you to another state or another you know, city somewhere you have to move and you're looking for a good church, this is just a little freebie. As, as a rule of thumb, I would say a, a good question to ask to, to know, is this a good church, at least a good starting point? Ask the leadership of the church, do you practice church discipline? Matthew chapter 18, do you do that? And if they don't do that, then you know they're not really as faithful to God's word as they claim to be. A lot of churches claim fidelity to the word of God. But uh, that's a variant because Matthew 18 is not, not always real comfortable for us, is it? But if we're faithful to God's word, the church is, that church will do it. Good starting point. The vast majority of evangelical churches either refuse to practice church discipline, even worse, they are ignorant, indifferent to it. As a case in point, we have all heard and are familiar with the verse, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. How many times have we heard this verse used for a Sunday morning worship or a Wednesday night prayer meeting? Two or three are gathered together. I am there in their midst. I know I used to hear this all the time growing up, and I would always wonder, well, what about when I'm by myself? You know, is, is he not there then? Do we have to have two or three gathered before Christ is with us? Well, if that doesn't, if that's never made sense to you. There's a good reason for that, because that verse has absolutely nothing to do with Sunday morning worship, has absolutely nothing to do with Wednesday night prayer meeting. 
That is the concluding verse to Jesus' discourse on church discipline. But very, very, very few Christians know that. I would say most here do, but very few in churches in general. Indifference. Indifference to Christ is actually worse and more offensive, more odious to him than those who actively oppose him. The indifference of those who profess to be his is far more offensive to Christ than all of the ISIS fighters, all of the ACLUs, all of the liberal politicians put together. The people of Capernaum never persecuted Christ. They never persecuted him. Very few even criticized him, if any. They were simply indifferent. They were indifferent. When we consider that it will be more tolerable for Sodom, a city that was known for violent homosexuals, it will be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than it will be for Capernaum. That should give us pause. That is sobering. Indifference in the church today is shown when we have absolute unprecedented access to the Word of God, access to sermons, commentaries, solid biblical preaching, all at the click of a button through the Internet, and yet we remain willfully ignorant of God's Word. So that in the way of a little bit of context. Now let's get back to our main passage, chapter uh, chapter 11, verse 25. Verse 25. At that time. At that time. This phrase indicates that what follows is closely connected to the preceding context. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you. I praise you. The word here is examalagumai. Exalamagumai. And this word means to literally burst forth in exaltation. You can probably hear exalt in that word, examalagumai. Christ burst forth in praise and exaltation to the Father in the hearing of all of the people. What was it for which he praised the Father? What elicited from him such a public effusion of praise and worship? It was that the Father had hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and delivered them to babes. Now, before we get to the hiding, what are these things in the Greek Tautai, what does that mean, these things? Jesus does not directly identify these things. So in the absence of such identification, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Luke chapter 19 records Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And in verses 41 through 42, we see that as Jesus approached that great city, he wept over it, saying, If you had known today, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. The things are the things which pertain to the gospel, faith and repentance. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 records that after his resurrection, Jesus spoke of, quote, the things concerning the kingdom of God. Just as God hid these things from Jerusalem, as evidenced by his crucifixion, the residents of Jerusalem crucified and called for his crucifixion, God had hid these things from Jerusalem. The things of the gospel God has also hidden here in our text. Now, most professing, professing Christians do not often think of God as hiding things. Most of the time we think of God as revealing things, not hiding things. Revealing truths, not hiding them. And yet he does hide things. He even hides the things of the gospel. We must ask two questions then. From whom is he hiding the things of the gospel? And why is he hiding the things of the gospel? First, the from whom. The from whom question is very easily answered because Jesus tells us the things of the gospel are hidden from the wise and the intelligent. The wise and intelligent is a sarcastic reference. One of your questions there. The wise and intelligent is a sarcastic reference to those who perceive themselves to be wise and intelligent. It is those who have great confidence in their intellect and their knowledge. Upon considering this, we might think first of the wise and intelligent of those who reject the Bible on intellectual grounds, scientific grounds, supposedly. Those who believe, for example, that the earth is billions of years old rather than the clear teaching of Scripture. Those who believe in biological evolution, the belief that nothing created everything. Evangelist Ray Comfort has referred to biological evolution as a fairy tale for grown-ups. And that's 
Pretty good description, I think. It is a fairy tale for grown-ups. But then, those who are religious, not the professing atheists, by the way, there are no real atheists, but those who profess to be atheists, that's one group of the wise and intelligent, but then there are the wise and intelligent who actually are religious. But they follow some pagan religion or a distorted, unbiblical version of Christianity. These are people who profess to be wise in their own eyes. They do exactly what Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Also included within the wise and intelligent are those who have actually made intellectual assent to the true gospel, to the true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. They have made intellectual assent to these basic Bible truths. Some of the wise and intelligent have done this. They have made intellectual assent to the true saving gospel of Christ, and yet uh, they reject they reject Scripture when it comes to matters of repentance, when it comes to matters of denying themselves. Their lives have not been changed. They have intellectual assent to the true gospel, yes, but their lives have not been changed. There are many, many people who profess faith in Christ and His gospel and yet have refused to bend the knee to his lordship. Like those in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, they refuse to repent. These things, the things of the gospel, genuine faith and genuine repentance have been hidden from those who perceive themselves to be wise and intelligent in either the secular worldly realm or the religious Christian realm. God in his sovereignty has hidden salvation from them. That's the who. Now the why. Why has he hidden them? He did this. He hid the things of the gospel both as an act of judgment and as an act of mercy. An act of judgment because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Romans 1.18. And as an act of mercy so that their judgment would be prevented from being compounded any further. This is why Jesus taught in parables. If someone ever tells you that Jesus taught in parables so that the common everyday man, layman, could understand deep spiritual truths in common everyday language. If he, if he taught in parables just to kind of get down on the, on, the, uh, on the ground of the common man, if you ever hear somebody say that, you know that that person does not know what he or she is talking about. The exact opposite of this is true. Jesus taught in parables so that the wise and intelligent would not understand. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus' disciples asked him very directly, Why do you speak in parables? And Jesus replied to them very directly. In verse 11 of Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Parables were both acts of judgment and of mercy. Judgment because it kept them in the darkness which they loved, and yet it was mercy because it prevented any more exposure to the truth. It prevented them from being exposed to any more truth, which would only compound their condemnation. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24, thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the, Lord's, the Lord. He has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and yet he has revealed them to infants. Infants, babes, your translation may have. The word in the Greek here is nepion, and it literally means infants, sucklings. Jesus here does not have in view a chronological measuring stick. Okay, He does not have in view a chronological measuring stick. He is not saying that the things of God are being revealed to babies or toddlers or even young children. That is not his point. The point he is making is that the things of God are revealed to those who have been brought to a place where they understand that they are completely bereft in and of themselves of any resources, any merit, which could possibly earn God's favor. There is absolutely nothing that we can do, dear ones, to earn the favor of God. Nothing we can do to earn His favor. Nothing that we can do to earn His acceptance. 
It is not coincidental that the first beatitude that Jesus taught is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who understand their own sinfulness, their own frailty, their own spiritual bankruptcy, and their own total dependence upon God. A baby is totally dependent upon someone else for his well-being. A baby can do nothing for himself. Left alone, a baby will die. Left to ourselves, left to our own fallen state, there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to help ourselves. We will remain in our own state of spiritual death. Nothing we can do to save ourselves. Helpless, just as the babes are helpless. In considering Jesus' statements about an interaction with babes and children, it is easy for us to think of these things in tender and compassionate terms only. To be sure, Jesus was tender and compassionate towards children. And I believe that when death comes to a baby or to a young child or to an adult who simply lacks the mental capacity through you know, mental handicap, lacks the mental capacity to understand the things of the gospel, I think when I believe that when death comes to one such as this, that baby, that mentally handicapped person, is safe in the arms of God. People go to hell because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I don't think a baby or a young child or mentally handicapped person even has the capacity to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's not what is going on. But this tenderness and compassion was not all that he had in mind in, this, in his interactions with the very young. Recall Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 19 when he said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. This is not, as some suppose, support for baptizing infants or even baptizing young children. To such as these does not refer to their age as much as it does their status. Just as babies are completely dependent upon others for their physical well-being, so are children. A child cannot go out and get a job. A child cannot pay the mortgage, pay the taxes, bring home the bacon. No, he has no resources in and of himself. He's completely dependent upon others. A child is completely dependent upon his parents for his well-being. The kingdom of God is revealed to those who have been brought to the point and acknowledge that they have no resources in and of themselves to know God or to please God. The kingdom of God is revealed to the nephion, the babes, it has been revealed to the technon, to the, to the children who understand and recognize their own spiritual emptiness and bankruptcy. It is revealed to those who realize that they are sinful and undone before a holy God whose anger burns against the wicked, that their sinfulness, sinfulness has earned his wrath. Dear friends, there is a big difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. Again, one of your blanks. A big difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. Uh, most children who are raised in a Christian home at very early ages, they will adopt the faith, generally speaking, of their parents. I've been to South Africa and I've been to Uganda, and I've, I've seen um, a lot of Muslim men walking around in their Muslim garb, and they have their five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old son, usually sons with them, and you know they've got the Muslim, whatever you call it, the hat that they wear in their garb, and their their little boys are dressed just like them. A child is going to do whatever he sees his or her parents do. So there's a big difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. A childlike faith is a faith that recognizes that we are completely and undone before God. That there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to save us. We are totally and completely dependent upon Him. Verse 26. Jesus says, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Jesus burst forth into praise because this, the hiding of the things of God from those who perceive themselves to be wise and intelligent... In the revelation of these same things to the spiritually bankrupt and broken pleased God. It pleased God. To listen to most evangelical preaching today, one would be inclined to think that the gospel is about us. The gospel, it would seem, is about having our best life now or having our purpose-driven life 
Most preaching today takes a topic like marriage enhancement or finances or how to raise healthy and happy kids, and they go cherry-picking through the Bible to try to find some verse of Scripture to some tangentially in some way support it, and thereby they read a meaning into a text that is not really there. This kind of preaching, though, this topical preaching is horizontal. It's horizontal. It is focused on us and our own life enhancement. But, dear friends, the Bible is not about us. The gospel is not about us. The gospel is about God. The gospel is about God. Now, there is a sense in which Christ's sacrifice was for us. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, yes, Christ did die on our behalf. He took our place. He bore the wrath of God so that we would not have to. So there is that sense. But overarching all of this, overarching all of this is the vast, infinite expanse of the glory of God. And to lose sight of this, to lose sight of this deific, this deific perspective, this God-centered, theocentric, God-centered perspective, to lose sight of that is to diminish the gospel. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy, holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. In this phrase, Paul says in verse 6, he does this to the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. He continues, same chapter, verse 11 verse through verse 14, Paul repeats twice. He said, we were the first to hope in Christ. We would be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 14, who was given the Holy Spirit, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Three times in that one chapter, Paul says that God saves us. He redeems us. He adopts us as sons to the praise of his glory. There's a Christian song out there, one line of which says this, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. No. No. When he was on the cross, the glory of God was on his mind. The glory of God was on his mind. So much of what is being promoted today as Christianity or preaching is anything but. It is horizontal. It is not vertical. Everything that God does, including our own redemption, is ultimately for and to the praise of his glory. Think about how many issues facing the quote-unquote church today, how many issues facing the church today would be almost instantly rectified, instantly alleviated if we would just shift our focus from the horizontal to the vertical. Verse 27 Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This statement of Christ in verse 27 is basically a commentary on what he said in verse 25. Here Jesus calls God my Father, something which no Jew would ever do for himself. This is a clear and unambiguous affirmation of his deity. Jesus is equating himself with God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are the same in essence and nature and are inseparable. Apart from the absolute deity of Christ, there is no gospel. There is no gospel. All things means just that. All things, all power, all authority, all truth, all righteousness, all judgment, all mercies are under the divine sovereignty of the Lord Christ. In this phrase, no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. This is another affirmation of the depravity of man, how totally depraved we are. 
Man is wholly unable to know God. Scripture gives abundant testimony that we are not spiritually sick. We are not in spiritual ICU. We are spiritually dead. We are in the morgue, tag on the toe, dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are like Lazarus who is four days dead in the tomb and we stinketh. Just as Jesus called forth Lazarus, he must call us forth and he must make us alive. Apart from the quickening and regenerating of God's Holy Spirit, we would all remain in the tomb. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. We often think in terms of us making decisions for Christ. That's the predominant view of evangelical Christianity today. We make decisions for Christ. We fancy ourselves as choosing him. And yet the Bible gives very clear testimony that it is not we who choose God, but God who chooses us. Jesus states in John chapter 15, verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you. John chapter 5, verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Many have tried to take texts such as this and claim they don't really mean what they appear to mean. This violates, though, a fundamental rule of biblical hermeneutics, biblical interpretation. Uh, the meaning of a text is almost always just what it appears to be. Some people don't like these statements. Oh, they don't mean what they appear to mean. But that goes against biblical hermeneutics, Bible interpretation 101. The meaning of a text is almost always exactly what it appears to be, unless symbolic language is clearly being used. You know, for example, when Jesus said, I am the door, Jesus did not literally mean he's a piece of wood with hinges, obviously using symbolic language. So, but apart from the bat, the meaning of the text is what it appears to be. Jesus meant here exactly what it appears. He meant the same thing that he meant in John 5:21, the same thing in John 15:16, the same thing in John chapter 6 verse 37 when Jesus said, "All that the Father has given me will come to me." The redeemed are those who have been given to the Son as a love gift from the Father. If you're here this morning and you know Christ as Savior and Lord, you know what you are. You are a love gift that has been given from the Father to the Son. We are love gifts to the Son. Some deem this doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation is as objectionable. It's not fair, some would say. But who are we to deem what is fair and unfair? Who are we to talk back to God? That is the whole point that Paul made in the chapter of uh, chapter 9 of the book of Romans. And dear friends, think about it this way. I think if we all got really honest, if we all got really honest and thought about it, we would have to admit that God would be entirely just if he were to allow each and every one of us to go to hell. Would he not? He would be entirely just to allow all of us to go to hell because we hate the light, we love the darkness, we love our sin, we hate, our, hate the light. And so everybody is running to hell just as fast as their little fallen feet will carry them. That's what people want. They love their sin. And God would be entirely just to allow all of us to go to hell. So is he any less just when he chooses to save some? Does that make him less just? We underestimate just how vile and sinful we really are before a holy God. Dear friends, God's grace is just that. It is God's grace. It belongs to him. And he can do with it whatever he pleases to do. The great reformer Martin Luther said this. Martin Luther said, quote, Here the bottom falls out of all merit. All powers and abilities of reason or the free will men dream of, and it all counts as nothing before God. Christ must do and must give everything. Indeed, the bottom falls out of human merit. But verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me. Come to me. This is the invitation of Christ. That God is sovereign in salvation is taught throughout both the Old and New Testaments, and yet so is the responsibility of, excuse me, of man to respond to God's call to him in the gospel. The call of God to come to Christ is a call that goes out to all. John chapter 1 verse 12, to as many as received him. John chapter 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him, whosoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have everlasting life. John chapter 5, verse 24, He who hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life. Chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, The one who comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Chapter 6, verse 51, If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Chapter 7, verse 31, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The call, the invitation goes out to anyone and everyone. God's kingdom will be populated with people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Christ's invitation to come to him is wide and it is open. But I thought we just discussed how God is sovereign in salvation. I thought we discussed that God chooses and elects. That's right, he does. The sovereignty of God in salvation and the responsibility of man are both taught in Scripture. Both are true. Now some would question, how could this be? This is what we call an antinomy. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-Y. M-Y. An antinomy. An antinomy is two truths that appear to be contradictory, but really are not. And there are a number of antinomies in Scripture. There's a number of them. The Trinity, for example. Is God one, or is he a triune God? Both. Did the Apostle Paul write the book of Romans, or did God write the book of Romans? Both. Was Christ fully human, or was he fully God? Both. Both of these are true. The antinomy of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility runs through all of Scripture from start to finish. Sometimes we see this antinomy even in the same verse. Consider this from the Apostle Peter's sermon in Jerusalem, recorded in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. The Apostle Peter says this, very interesting. He says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So, who put Christ to death? Was it godless men? Yes. Was it by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God? Yes. An antinomy. They seem to be contradictory, but really they're not. When Charles Spurgeon was asked how to reconcile God's sovereignty and salvation and man's responsibility, Spurgeon replied very simply. He says, quote, you don't have to reconcile friends. All who are. Come to me, all who are. This indicates a condition that already exists. Those whom Jesus invites are already weary and already heavy laden. Come to me represents faith in Christ. Those who come to Christ do so in faith. So even though the weary and heavy laden is mentioned after faith, chronologically it precedes faith. Being weary and heavy laden. Well, what does this mean? The call of Christ goes to all and it is effectual. It is effectual to those who are weary and heavy laden. Those who are weary of relying on their own wisdom their own intellect, their own futile good works, those who have come to the end of themselves and are at the point of exhaustion from trying to please God from their own merits. They're exhausted from trying to please God from their own merits. The heavy laden are those who are not only exhausted from their own efforts, but are also heavily laden with the guilt of sin. Those who are sorrowful over their sins. And this, dear ones, is very, very important. What I'm about to say may be the most important thing I say this morning. If you have your Bibles, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Jim read that for us this morning in the scripture reading, but I want us to look at this again. Just flip over. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says to the Corinthians, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. 
Dear friends, there are two kinds of sorrow over sin. Two types of sorrow. There is a worldly sorrow first. A worldly sorrow is that sorrow which results merely from a guilty conscience. And everyone on the planet has that. Everybody has that. We all have a guilty conscience. All of us deep down know instinctively that it is wrong to lie, that it is wrong to steal, that it is wrong to murder. We don't have to be told these things. We know these things. We instinctively know it. We have a conscience. That's why people instantly try to cover their tracks. Everybody has a guilty conscience. Everybody has this worldly sorrow. A worldly sorrow is that sorrow which is centered around self. Okay? A worldly sorrow is a sorrow that is centered around self. What would happen to me if my sin were found out? What would be the consequences to me? How would that affect me? How would that affect my life, my reputation? How would that affect uh, my job? That's a worldly sorrow. And a worldly sorrow leads to death. And everybody has it. But there is a godly sorrow. There is a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow over sin is that which is concerned not with self, but with God. A godly sorrow is when we recognize that our own sin, first and foremost, is against Him, His person. A godly sorrow is that sorrow which grieves us because we know that we have grieved God. Our sin grieves Him. He has been so good. He has been so kind. He has been so patient. He has been so merciful. And yet, we knowingly and deliberately sin against Him. When we grieve because our sin grieves God, that is a godly sorrow. Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The mourning that Jesus speaks of here is not mourning over the loss of a friend or a loved one in death. That's not the mourning he's talking about. Blessed are they that mourn those who mourn over their sin. They are grieved over their sin. That is godly sorrow. Do you have that godly sorrow? That is one of the hallmarks of a genuine Christian. That is one of the hallmarks of a genuine Christian. Do you have a worldly sorrow over your sin? Or do you have a godly sorrow over your sin? We often think of coming to Christ to escape the wrath of God in hell. And this is good and right. The lost should fear God. But there should be more to our coming to Christ than merely wanting to escape hell. Just as much as we want to be saved from hell, we should also want to be saved from our sins. Bible commentator Arthur Pink writes this. He says this, quote, The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misre misrepresented by the present-day evangelist. Now, Pink was writing this about 75 years ago. Keep in mind, he's writing this about 75 years ago. The nature of Christ's salvation is woefully misrepresented by the present-day evangelist. He announces a Savior from hell rather than a Savior from sin. That is why so many are fatally deceived. For there are multitudes who wish to escape the lake of fire who have no desire to be delivered from their carnality and worldliness. It is good to... Fear God, fear His wrath. But when you came to Christ, was it just to get a get out of hell free card? Or did you really want to be delivered from your sinfulness? Delivered from your wretchedness? You had that godly sorrow because you know your sin grieves God and you want to be delivered from that. Note what is the fruit of godly sorrow. The Bible says that godly sorrow produces repentance, genuine repentance. Any supposed profession of faith or conversion without repentance is a farce. It is a false conversion. Isaiah was a preacher of repentance. Jeremiah was a preacher of repentance. The apostles John and Peter, preachers of repentance. Jesus was a preacher of repentance. Luke chapter 13, I tell you the truth, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Where there has been no repentance, there has been no salvation. The subject of repentance is one in which there is a great deal of confusion in the church today. 
The Greek word for repentance, metanoia, literally means a change in mind. That's what the word literally means. And repentance does encompass this. It does encompass a change in mind, but it is much more than this. When most people think of repentance, they think of simply trying to change themselves. Uh, Self-effort, kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you will yourself to be a better person. You will yourself to turn away from certain sins. And yet, this is the very thing from which Christ offers us rest. He offers us rest from self-effort. And yet, repentance, most people think, is willing yourself to be a better person. Willing yourself to turn away from certain sins. How can this be? Are we to turn away from sins? Or are we to rest? For the majority of my life, this seemed to be a massive contradiction in the gospel itself. I understood that salvation was not of works. I understood that. I understood you cannot help enough little old ladies across the street to earn your salvation. That made sense to me. But I had this view of repentance that most Christians, most professing Christians, have the same view. That repentance is something you will yourself to do. You will yourself to turn away from certain sins. And it seemed to be a massive contradiction inherent in the gospel itself. How can we say that the gospel... Salvation is not of works, and yet in order to be saved, we've got to repent, which is in fact a work. Massive contradiction. Properly understood, however, there is no contradiction at all. And there is no contradiction because, dear ones, in and of ourselves, we can't repent. We can't do it. You can't repent on your own. I can't repent on my own. We cannot do it. Remember, we are spiritually what? Sick? No, we are spiritually dead. A dead man cannot raise himself. A leopard cannot change its spots. The answer to this seeming contradiction is that genuine repentance is in and of itself granted by God. God grants repentance. Three verses that speak of this in your outline. Three verses. First one, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. God grants repentance to those who are in opposition to the gospel. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Acts 5, 31, God grants repentance to Israel. And then in Acts chapter 11, verse 17, God grants repentance to the Gentiles. So he grants repentance to those who are in opposition to the gospel. He grants repentance to Israel, the Jews. grants repentance to the Gentiles, you and me. That covers everybody. You cannot do it on your own. God must grant it. That is the answer. Genuine repentance is not a work. It is a gift. It is not something we do. It is something that God does in us. Now, a word of caution. Repentance is not something we can do, and it is not a work, but it does produce works. It does produce works. Genuine repentance bears fruit. John the Baptist preached, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The Apostle Paul said to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he said, So, King Agrippa, I kept declaring that all men should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. We do not perform deeds in order to repent, but when God does grant repentance, there will be deeds, there will be works, there will be fruit in keeping with repentance. And genuine repentance will be evident to others around us. It will be evident to others around us. Others who know us, when God has granted us repentance, others around us, to be able to see that. Jesus says, I will give you rest. In Scripture, the rest of God is synonymous with his salvation. Christ will grant rest to those who are weary of their self-efforts and who are weary of their sin. To those who come to him in repentance of faith, he promises a clear conscience. He promises eternal life with him. The writer of Hebrews says, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from works as God did from his. Verse 29, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. A yoke was a large piece of handcrafted wood that fit around the necks of animals uh, for plowing or some type of heavy work. And a yoke was often used as a metaphor uh, for submission. Pretty easy to see that picture, is it not? Students were often spoken of as being under the yokes of their teachers. Jesus invites sinners to stop from their labors, enter his rest, and take upon themselves the yoke, the lordship of Christ. 
there's been much debate over something known as lordship salvation. Some would like to believe that a person can accept Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. This is error. The Bible knows of no other salvation other than lordship salvation. Jesus called people to deny themselves, to take up their cross. This was a call to die, and if called upon to do so, to lay down one's life for the gospel. Die to self, and if called upon to do so, lay down one's life for the gospel. Dear friends, a genuine Christian may stray from the Lord for a season. That can and does happen, but not indefinitely. If you truly belong to Christ, if you are His, if you have been made regenerate in Him, sealed with the Holy Spirit, you may stray for a season from the Lord, but not indefinitely. If you stray from Him, He will bring you back. He will discipline you. Hebrews chapter 12, and He will bring you back. Be not deceived. The person who does not know Jesus as Lord, neither does he know Him as Savior. But Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is not to be understood that the Christian life is a life of ease. It's not an easy one. Jesus did not, does not promise a life of ease. Far from it, actually. Jesus promised what? He promised tribulation. Jesus promised persecution. What does Scripture say? Some of those who live godly in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. Is that what it says? It says all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How then is his yoke an easy one? How is his burden light if he promises that we'll be persecuted? When one has been granted repentance and when one has put his faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, while not always easy, always, always easy and while our life is not always marked by comfort, our life will be marked by trials and persecution, this life of service to Christ for those who truly belong to him is one that is done out of gratitude. It is one that is done out of gratitude. It is not laborious. We do it out of gratitude because of the incomprehensible sacrifice in His indescribable love. We should want to serve Him. The Apostle, the Apostle John writes this. John says, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. If we have truly been made alive in Christ, it is not a burden to serve Him. It's not to say it's always easy. But it's not a burden. We do it out of gratitude because of what he has done for us on the cross. Dear friends, as I close, I just want to close with the gospel. Has there been a time in your life when you have been convicted by God's Holy Spirit that you are a sinner? That you have broken God's laws and because you have broken his laws, you have earned his wrath. His wrath abides on you, says Scripture. And all of us left our own vices, all of us left our own fallen state, we all deserve hell. And if we die in our sins, we will very rightly and very justly go to hell. And we will be there for all of eternity. But the good news of the gospel is this. God loves you. God loves you and he has made a way for you to escape his wrath. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus lived a perfect life. He never broke any of the laws of God. He was sinless. He was the lamb without blemish. He willingly laid down his life on the cross and he bore the wrath of God so that you and I would not have to. And on the third day, bodily raised from the dead. And he proved himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And if you have been brought to the point where you understand that you're a sinner, if you have been brought to the point where you understand that your works cannot save you, if you have been brought to the point where you understand you are totally dependent before God, on God and you are totally undone before God, if you have brought, been brought to the point where you are weary of trying to please Him on your own, if you are weary, if you are heavy laden with guilt, and not just that worldly guilt, not that worldly sorrow, but the godly sorrow, if you are heavy laden with that, if you understand that your sin grieves God and you are grieved for that, Christ has good news. He offers you rest. Come to me, 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to faith in Christ. Repent of your sins. Place your trust in him, His person, His work, what He did for you on the cross. There is salvation in no one else. He offers rest for the weary. Let's close in a word. Father, we would, uh, none of us would be brought to the point of godly sorrow were it not for the wooing of your Holy Spirit. None of us have any ability in and of ourselves to seek after you. We understand that you must seek after us. And yet we are responsible. We are accountable for what we do with the claims of Christ, claims of who he is, the claims that he has on our lives. So, Lord, as we go, um, as, as your message has gone out, your gospel has gone out, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only he can do, that he would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. If there be any here who do not know Christ as Savior, we pray that your Spirit would bring them to that point, bring them to a point of godly sorrow, bring them to a point of being weary over their own failed self-efforts, and bring them to a point where they are heavy laden with their, the guilt of their sin and give them rest. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.